Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Tim Malcolm Vetter. Tim is the director of Red Team at Walmart. I believe Walmart might be the world's largest employer. I think it's the largest outside of Department of Defense for the United States. I think um, it's definitely the largest company, uh, private enterprise. But I, I don't know that DOD might barely edge us out. What is the director of Red Team at Walmart responsible for? <sighs> running red team exercises, um, basically learning where the business, uh, like where the, the spots in the business are, are most important to uh, go and put some friction on. Um, and it's, it's, you know, honestly, I think I'm probably still learning what that, what the job title is every single day. We uncover more things and learn more things about the company and we get more mature as we go along for sure. In fact, I cringe thinking about what little I, I really knew four years ago versus what I know today. So Four years ago coming into the gig? Yeah, coming into this role. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I even I've even cringed at things like job descriptions we wrote when we first started um, just because to of what to what it would look like today. Uh, yeah. You know, knowing what you know now, right? Knowing what we know now. Very, very much. It was uh, pen test plus plus, which I think is really, really common, right? Like you get a lot of people that think, OK, red team, this is I'm just going to do this large penetration test. It's going to be really wide scoped. It's going to be, you know, no holds barred and we're going to do all these things. And then to other people, it means I'm going to go download a tool like Atomic Red Team and run a bunch of TTPs and replay stuff. It means so many different things to different people. Um, to us, it's uh, straight up adversary simulation. So that means we are always trying full outside in. We all, we've we've dabbled a little bit in the assumed breach scenario where you, you pretend like you got your initial access vector because that's that's honestly the hardest part about some of this, these exercises. But um most of the stuff we do is straight, full-on, outside-in. We try to figure out how can we get in. And that means we fail a lot because getting that initial access foothold is hard. So Okay, wait. Let's, uh, let's give, 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 give the audience a sense, the listeners a sense of the enormity of, this, um, uh, of the network. Can you give me a sense of what that looks like? I can give you a sense, and I can tell you, I think the biggest thing I can tell you is that I'm still trying to figure out how big it is and where it stops. Um, <laughs> so the, um, the, like the public data that we exchange about how big Walmart is from a tech perspective is 130 million IP addresses, petabytes and petabytes of big data. I mean, when people say big data um, to, to Walmart people, it's usually cute and laughable because we, I mean, it's another scale. 2.2 um, million associates, more than 200 unique million customers in either our stores or online presence every week. And we're, we're talking about five continents. So most people think of Walmart, just the blue brand, but they don't think of like, um, all the different brands and all the different continents and all around the world. I mean, it's, it's huge. Um, we've you, yeah, reused all the 1918 private space a couple of times, I think. So it's, wow. it's hum humongous. And, and I bring that up because, again, doing Red Team and doing some sort of simulation of adversary activities against a network of this size, you, you mentioned getting initial foothold might be difficult, but Defending this enormous, enormous, enormous footprint also brings a, a sense of uh, a sense of blindness to you, right? Um, I think any enterprise at any scale is going to have limitations. I, we have the same limitations that other companies do. It's just our scale is bigger. So, like you know, if you took any random Fortune 500 company and you said, you know, um, we think we can only see n percent, whatever that percent is, eighty percent, forty percent, whatever that CISO thinks that they their visibility is into, into um, detection of you know suspicious or malicious behavior, you're probably going to have that same kind of concept. We're just we're just talking at our scale, so it's it's like no enterprise is going to be ever one hundred percent free of vulnerability, 
And that's something that um, is hard probably for a lot of people to, to realize or to fathom, like, or to, right. to appreciate, right? So you're always dealing with some level of vulnerability, which means you're always dealing with like some sort of compromise. Can, and I don't mean compromise in the sense of breach. I mean compromise in the sense of if I can't prevent this thing, how do I know I can detect or respond to it, right? Right. So and compromise to you doesn't necessarily mean breach. Compromise to you might be, you know, 15 minutes of downtime, availability and a denial of service attack against some small thing in some small area. The enormity of the, the uh, implications for that is is there, right? Well, we were talking, it was really good timing. So this is right, right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously Walmart has a, a, been a critical component of course. to the United States' response to this because we're maintaining everything open and keeping uh, supply chains going. And and, that, and that's kind of Walmart's way for like every single major disaster, right? Like if you go look at the uh, like the hurricanes down in Florida, we usually have bottled waters, uh, trucks full of bottled water just lined up waiting to get the okay to, to, to come into to wherever that affected area is, bring in fresh pharmacy, you know, so we can, you know, replenish people who have mission critical scripts and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, they're, they're definitely um, availability is a big, big component. And if you look at Q4 timeframe, like holiday timeframe, uh, my understanding, and you probably can go like look this up in public record, but I think it's something like a billion dollars a day revenue. And around um, November timeframe, you know, when we get close to, to uh, Thanksgiving, that's when our red teaming actually stops for this very reason. We do not want to even be remotely involved in anything that might look like a... In being responsible for breaking anything. Yep. That... Yeah. One of my favorite statistics about Walmart and in the scale, which is really, really fun, is the sale of bananas. Bananas are the number one most sold SKU inside of all of Walmart. Like if you think about it, it makes sense, right? It's one SKU for bananas by the pound. And we sell so many bananas that the best way to, to, uh, to represent it is bananas per second. It's 32 pounds of bananas per second going out the door of a Walmart store. Now think about that for a second. And just, just think for like, think about supply chain of that, right? Growing those someplace in a tropical location, getting them shipped where they need to go, getting them distributed on trucks, the, the, the appropriate distribution centers and stores. And then think about getting, getting them into customers' hands and also realize that there's a lot of customers that walk out of the store without bananas. So there's a lot of transactions going. So if you can just imagine that 32 pounds per second, it's, it's ridiculously huge. Uh, without obviously, without going into any sort of uh, proprietary details and so on, when you talk about a simulated adversarial attack, uh, just outside in, assuming the pers- persona of a real adversary using their TTPs, using everything, uh, you know, can you give me a, a, a general sense about the most common ways uh, of infections that have not changed over the years? Do you understand well, the question I'm trying? Be- I think I do. I think I do. In fact, actually, out on my, my blog, because I get this a lot, and I like to always, like, one of the, one of the things I think that I, I have always done from the beginning is try to break things down as simply as possible. And I think that's been one of the, like, things that's really helped my my just IT career in general is to think about things in simple concepts and principles. And uh, so I've got a, a blog out on my Medium uh, blog that's called the How We Breach Your Network, and it's breaking all the, f- there's basically just five key ways that um, somebody, like a bad actor, can get into any given company. Um, yes. So right, let's examine this five. I actually agree with you. And this is what I want us to focus on. There's, 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 there's very, very, you can count it on maybe two hands, the ways a companies can be, a company can be breached. And those are. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, 
because I'm, you know, being lame here, I'm actually pulling up my blog, so I don't... No, that's fine, because I want to match it against what the ASD and the NSA describes as the, the you know, this essential eight maturity model about, you know, yeah. what is the, what are the, here are the eight mitigation strategies you absolutely need as like a baseline to get to a certain maturity model. And I want to match that against red team data on uh, foolproof ways that adversaries get in. You know what I mean? Sure. So like the five ways that I, that as I see them are, uh, number one, exploitable vulnerabilities in the internet facing services. So that's, that's your like WordPress. That's patch management. You know, patch applications. Yeah, patch management. It's, it's also like, uh, leaving your default creds out there, you just your basic configuration flaws, stuff that a vulnerability scanner should find. That's that. Do one. you also do you bundle uh, cloud deployments in here as well, like AWS we deployments? Have, we okay, have, so anything in here, you're 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 bundling that in this bucket. Yeah, I'm okay. yeah, I'm bundling everything. Anything just publicly, just think of it as publicly facing services, whether it's private cloud, public cloud, on premise stuff doesn't matter, right? It's all the Got same. It. Um, number two would be abusing internet facing authentication mechanisms. That's the way I like sum up, you know, whether that's um, phishing for credentials, really, um, or it's that lack of multi-factor authentication is where you would bundle right. this. Yeah. I mean, like real time man in the middle for multi-factor. That's a real thing. I mean, you know, um, depending on how the multi-factor is set up and you've seen examples in the news where people go and call somebody's uh, like AT&T and say, uh, I need to change my SIM card and then suddenly, suddenly start getting their uh all the text to that cell phone number and then they can right but even outside of the sim jacking and so on some red teamers have told me about ways where even multi-factor authentication are badly implemented in 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 modern organizations as well that allow a red teamer to add himself there or add himself to certain groups yeah i've seen examples of things um just speaking generically here across the enterprise not necessarily walmart specific but i've seen examples where um there have been multi-factor setups that are internet facing for their enrollment and so you, right. you log in with one factor to enroll your second factor. And it's kind of like, really? What was the point of that? Exactly. Uh, so there's there's stuff like that. And there's also um, just if it's really targeted, there are, um, I'm trying to forget, I forget the name of the, there's a couple of open source projects that we use sometimes when we're doing these multi-factor um, man in the middle stuff where you can actually set up a web proxy, get in the middle of the requests. And, but the, the trick to that is you have to have a domain that looks realistic and then basically your web server will replay the, the one-time passcode credentials and save off the session cookies this is not this is not a new idea in fact um, I distinctly being an old guy remember when Bruce Schneier talked about this way long time ago back when you were writing stuff um, you know in press the early reading, 90s yeah yeah the 1990s yeah I remember reading about it way back then where you know he's like you know as soon as you guys uh, you as an industry push everything to uh, multi-factor, then what's going to happen is you're going to you're going to drive all of your phishing attacks to be a real-time man in the middle, and he called it like so long prior. So, and that's that's definitely the case. So that'd be like number two, and the number three is phishing for malware execution. This is what you know, like your your malicious documents or just whatever social engineering trick where I can get somebody to run code of mine. We obviously see a lot of fin actors use this a lot, right? So, uh, sending the the commodity malware, the stuff that goes out. There's People whose careers now are just around tracking this, watching the changes, um, observing the details. And this has gotten uh, such a cat and mouse game that I know of people who, uh, if they talk even publicly about some of the detections that they're coming up with for the new fish campaigns, will literally, that person's influence is so significant that the threat actor will actually change patterns in their malware just because of their public discussion, whether it's on Twitter or blog posts or GitHub or whatever. So 
this is obviously, you know, a common way. It's still going to be there. It's going to be there for a long time, probably, but it's getting harder. And that's, are we ever going to, are we ever going to address the fishing problem, which has never been fixed? Are we, are we resigned to trying to address it as a people problem versus a technology problem? Um, I don't know. Um, I've gone back and forth on this. I, I don't know how much value the, I, I, I will say this. Listen, since the 1990s, I've had this argument with Dave yeah, Vitell about uh, security awareness training being a waste of time and a waste yes. of money. However, I know since the did. 1990s to 2020, we have not changed for the better. I would say it is something you should do, but it just like everything, if you've got a really robust and very mature security program, you probably have that. You probably have a lot of things. doesn't mean you would want to invest more heavily in awareness training than you would in like detection and response. I think, I think detection and response is super critical and that should get the bulk of your budget. You know, when you're comparing to, uh, you know, like training somebody not to click on something that's malicious, but you know, a good organization is going to do both, you know, why not? So I don't know, but anyway, that's, that's category number three. And then I'd say category number four, and this is where, you know, uh, people get delusions, grandeur, they start thinking about Hollywood, they start thinking about James Bond, or they see YouTube videos of, you know, infamous red teams doing this, but gaining physical access to a network and connecting a rogue device. Now, um, my my blue team peers will rightfully chastise us and tell us that most fin groups are not willing to show their face in a building, and they're absolutely right. You know, these these criminal actors, if they're um, experiencing, you know, um, the potential to get themselves on CCTV footage and then arrested later, they will not show up. But that doesn't mean that they don't. You know, it just it's really really rare. But it's well, also- let me ask you this: Like, why am I wasting resources looking at that when uh, there's so many different entryways to come in? That just seems like a like a high fence for them to jump. It is. Uh, it is, and it is. And are you suggesting I apply resources to look for somewhere oh. where it's just such a high fence to jump when I still can't figure out my freaking patching or fishing uh, anti fishing? I think it's like everything else. You know, um, any extreme answer of definitely do this and definitely don't do this is usually wrong. You know, um, you, you need to have a balance of everything. One cool thing that we have seen when we do on-site types of you know experiences, and we have like we have definitely gone and done things like this, where we go and send somebody um, pretending to be somebody they're not, get into a, a facility that they're not supposed to be there, whether it's like covert entry after hours or whether it's just straight up uh, following somebody in and pretending like you belong there. Those techniques work, and then what ends up happening is those turn into great awareness opportunities. So even when we think you know what, it's it's maybe not something that a fin group would do. But it's something that maybe somebody who's a targeted attacker or somebody who's like somebody who's left the organization on on good, like not good terms might maybe want to come back in this way. Or even if not that from the from like an attack chain perspective, once you're in that building and you have a device on the network, you're really no different than a malicious insider. Like everything that you can do from that point forward is the same as, say, a contractor that you gave a badge to and let them walk in. And so that's another reason why we do these. So maybe mm-hmm. the first steps of getting into the building were covert or uh, were like completely without authorization. But the steps from that point forward can be carried out by anybody with the know-how. I'm being flippant about it, uh, not being fully cognizant again about uh, Walmart's threat model. Like your threat model has nation state adversaries at, at a very, very real level. So at that level, someone walking into the building and using physical access as the first entry point becomes very, very realistic. Yeah, it's it's really weird. When you start talking about nation states, then you, it gets, especially now, see the deeper I get into red teaming, this is the other part that's fun about this. 
four years ago, I wasn't really into, you know, cyber intel at all. Like it didn't really, you know, I, I, I mean, I would hear things from, you know, from time to time. Somewhere along the, the last few years, um, most of my education or self-training, if you will, has come from in the form of reading breach reports. Right. I really I dig those. The Verizon DBIR, it's like a yeah, Bible, right? I'm thinking more like um, maybe even ones that are closed, maybe ones that aren't even uh, like I, I really love it. If you can get your hands, this is the problem. They're super educational, but then usually it's it's uh, limited distribution for a reason. Right. Because there's some. You're talking about the threat problem. intel reports, the private reports and some of the nation yeah. state level adversary manage, well, uh, I, monitoring. Yes, I well, I'm not, I'm less concerned about nation states than I am about fin groups, given my um, my right, right. now. But like just getting in and understanding what they do, what how they how they work, just weird things like we know things like uh, some of these attackers in Southeast Asia, if they land on a system that's in the U.S., we know that they're not going to use um, you know their keyboard. They're not going to do hands-on keyboard type activities in like as TTPs. They're going to do lots of copy and paste stuff because they don't have English language keyboards. Right. Or they don't speak English natively. So they, they clearly, you know, their their like culture and their language actually dictates their TTPs. And so when you start really getting into this and if you want to do adversary emulation on this level, you need to think about who your adversary is and how they work and not just like not just um, what they're after, but where they are and, and how their culture and their language might even Im- impact what they would do once they land inside. And that's stuff- so the notion of attribution becomes important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we absolutely, um, there's a handful of groups that we are very curious about and we, we model more so than others. Let's leave it at that. I know. And that includes, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but just based on all the public reporting and some of the uh, uh, adversary tracking, that also includes nation state that are uh, that uh, uh, specifically participate in, in fin theft. Um, so so it's, it's really fascinating to see how this world is playing itself out. Yeah, um, I think you're alluding to North Korea, and I think they're really funny because I don't think they're really they don't really operate like a nation state at all. They just operate like a state sponsored finger. But um, but yeah, yeah those are the guys I'm talking about. I mean, the Swift attack. They've been uh, uh, widespread uh, reporting on attacks against uh, uh, crypto uh, wallets and some of yes. the digital currencies places. So there's a lot of um, fin theft activity there. But I don't, I think you're right. I I don't think you can bundle them into the quote unquote traditional nation state threat actor group. Yeah. And then there's the last, if we're sticking with these five ways to get access, the fifth one is supply chain attacks. And this is the one that's probably the most interesting and yet the hardest to do red team, uh, you know, exercises around. So well, supply chain attacks mean a lot of different things. So can you help me define it? As, as... I, I would define two different kinds of extremes, really. So you've got everything from like, um, say somebody compromises the GitHub repo, the public GitHub repo of a um, really popular you know, open source library and inject something in there that, you know, basically gives a backdoor. Maybe it's targeted, maybe it's not. Um, that's obviously a supply chain attack that would attack a wide range of downstream customers. And then you also have supply chain attacks. I like to look at the human side of supply chain. So if you are a big multinational enterprise and you've got uh, IT outsourcing firms uh, throughout the globe, um, if a threat actor were to compromise one of those those particular um consulting firms or those IT outsourcing firms, um, that is a like a human supply chain attack, right? I, if I can go get that person's access and get their, you know, compromise their side that maybe isn't as monitored as well, uh, then you can come inside. And we've definitely seen examples of this in the wild, in, in, you know, over the last few years, just through uh, threat intelligence. 
So that that is something that's really interesting. Now, from a red team perspective, I can't go and compromise some huge, you know, say Node.js, you know, uh, library or something without staring down the barrel of the CFAA, right? The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So that's not something we can do. Um, so, but what does the trophy look like for a red teamer in that world? Um, Art, art. So, trophy. This is referring back to a conversation you had a long time ago. So, um, <laughs> trophy in this context, we always have objectives that we chase, right? And for us, it's it's because we try to monitor. Um, you know, we want to we want to look like fin groups. Um, we we go after data that is monetizable. So it's not necessarily like it's just something that would be valuable in the black market. Anything that you know, black market resale would be would have interest in. So that's that would be a kind of a trophy. So even though uh, we're talking about things like that. Um, I would view supply chain as just an initial access vector, right? So like we've we've heard scary stories of uh, like hardware manufacturers getting stuff put into chips or yeah, uh, grain of rice on top of chips. Yeah, exactly. And so you hear about stuff like that, and then you and you hear about oh, then there's something that's like identifying specific MAC addresses, and it's if you have these MAC addresses, then you get the next stage payload and and all this kind of stuff, and it's all very cloak and dagger. I think that kind of stuff is uh, extremely rare, but something that's very opportunistic, like I'm just going to go find some really common, you know, JavaScript library, whatever the flavor of the week is, and I'm going to go inject a few lines that just goes and it pulls in my JavaScript in my domain, and it, it pulls it into your DOM and then runs inside your browser. Like that is, you know, that, that's much more dangerous and I think much more likely to occur because it's opportunistic and it's a wide net. So it's stuff like that is, you know, very interesting. So you could get around this. So like if I was going to advise a red team how they would want to simulate it, I'd say... Um, go take a look at like one way is work with your blue team or work with your developers, find out the types of libraries you have in your environment and read somebody in and say, Hey, we want to tamper one of these libraries. We get pulled in. We're going to, we're going to tamper the process. And that this is kind of like an assume breach campaign, but it would be assume breach inside of a library and just see where you can chase it. That's like one scenario on the um, human side of things. You can just go and say, Hey, I want to request a contractor account for a fictitious contractor. Let that contractor sit around for three months do nothing. Maybe maybe you have somebody that logs in with it once every couple you know couple days or a week or whatever, and just do some really basic stuff just to keep it alive and make it look healthy, and then come back in three months later and start you know okay game on. What can I do with this account now? So things like that are um, I think are really cool scenarios and I think they're very plausible for red teams to do. But most of it outside of that, you're you're pretty much limited to simulating that first step because it's you know obviously I can't go take down an IT contractor and I can't go take down a public uh, repo. The first time we met was at Microsoft Blue Hat in 2018. You did a talk uh, there on this red teaming activities and you, the talk is titled, If We Win, We Lose. Yeah. And the notion there is this whole red versus blue. Explain what that means and, and why this phrase is so important to you. Well, first of all, that is a borrowed phrase from the NSA. Uh, the NSA red team challenge coin has the phrase, if we win, we lose. And I'm holding my challenge coin right here, looking at it, and we have that phrase on it. Uh, we give our challenge coins out to um, people who do good things, by the way. That's a cool token of, of rewarding good behavior. But I expect mine in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what uh, what we do with these is, or what we do with this phrase or what this moniker means to us is we have to get very much inside, you know, the heads of the defenders and realize, you know, that th this is this is why we're here. You know, we're defending the company by putting pressure on the company. And we're putting pressure on the company to make people get better. And there's a lot of like educational psychology that goes into this. There's a lot of chess and wargaming and even some jujitsu, which I know you love. 
Yeah, yeah, we'll get to the jujitsu in a yeah, second. Well, what I want to get a sense of is this relationship really adversarial in big organizations? Oh, absolutely, it is. It's really. Oh, yeah, for sure, it is. And I haven't talked to a single red team that's inside of a company that doesn't have it. And if you think about it, it's it's like it's just human nature because the the the, the deal is you've got uh, two sides that are going against each other, both you know for 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 stated objectives, right? And if you don't have those relationships worked out ahead of time. Whatever little you know rifts or little bit of friction you have between those two teams and the personalities on those teams will just get magnified at the first debrief, right? I've, we've gone through all those things. I've talked to uh, red teams at other companies. They have all had this problem. It's one of the most ongoing challenges. And what's really weird about it is it's not something you just solve once and you're done. It's something that you start off with and then you fix. And then you go along for a while and you think it's fine. And then you realize one day, oh, my goodness, it's really not fine. Well, let me ask you this: Couldn't this couldn't this be addressed easily by just not having segmented siloed teams and just have it be yep. purple? Like, sure. I mean, well, okay. So you bring out purple, we got to go into a whole new world. Um, no, no, no. I don't. I don't want to get segmented the conversation. I want to focus yeah, yeah, on yeah. this adversarial relationship. The if we win, we lose mentality, and and to get folks to understand that. As, as much as the adversarial relationship does help because you're you're both chasing objectives and it's almost competitive in nature and that does help. Yeah, uh, well, I think I think you got to realize a couple things. What are the downsides? Well, Ryan, I think you got to re- recognize that um, when you're doing this really deep, all-in kinds of long campaign scenarios, we're talking multi-month events. This is not mm-hmm. a that's in a week and you're done and then you and you brief, right? This is something that you know some of our campaigns have been as long as five months long, and if you don't talk about these things for five months. And then all of a sudden you find out that somebody was upset. I mean, it's, it's to the point where we are very cognizant of little things like try not to do anything that's going to get somebody paged out over a holiday weekend or over a weekend in general, because we know that those little things add up, right? Like if they come back and they find out, you know, that you really had to drop that payload at Friday at five, you know, did you really <laughs> of all right, those, right, right. Right. And now there, now to be fair, there are times where that's absolutely the best time to do it. Right. Because you can look and say my hypothesis. Fire drill. Right. Yeah. yeah my, my hypothesis is the company won't be ready at this time. So if I if I hit them at this this time where, where their resources are limited, it's going to have it's going to show a different flaw. Right. And that's where, you know, this concept of red teaming really, you know, it, it needs to be able to be free enough to do this. But you just got to find that balance. So, yes, it is a real thing. And, it, and it's, you know. It's not anything that food and drinks and good jokes and, and good time spent. And also, I do believe strongly in having uh, staff go switch between teams um, as you, whenever you can. But that's that's another whole topic in itself too. And a lot, I could imagine a lot of it is uh, ongoing relationship building where you're constantly applauding them for good decisions as well. And the red team not get into this mentality yep. of flagging mistakes only, right? Because it has to be a team. Absolutely. So this year we kicked off a thing and we actually, so the, the annual kickoff, we, we had a, a slide deck where I took a picture of, of the rocks gym and I said, this is your gym, right? Like the, the red team really, we, the way we think of it is we are creating your gym. This is your exercise equipment, all the, the tooling, the, the, the thoughts, the exercises, the scenarios, everything we're doing is some sort of exercise equipment in your gym to make you get better. That's why we're here. Right. And if you I think having that perspective is a, is a big deal. In fact, like we to talk about um, just irony here. It took me probably 18 months before I realized that the blue team was my number one customer. I thought for the first for the longest time, I just viewed this as, OK, I'm, you know, we're this kind of like CISO advisory role. So maybe the CISO is my customer. 
maybe, you know, the people, the stakeholders. Can you explain what you mean by customer? Yeah. Like who's, who's the number one person to benefit from what it is you do? You know, if you think if you, if I go into a store and I buy something, I'm the customer and, and I, you know, I, I, I give them money, they give me goods, right? Like real simple. In this particular case, I'm thinking, okay, every, every person in any enterprise has a, there's a, there's a purpose for you being there, right? We are an overhead, uh, or we are a, um, better way to put this. So we are a, a cost center. We're not a profit center, right? If I was a consultant, I would be a profit center. I'd be making money for the company. But as a cost center, that means I'm costing the company money, which means I've got to be returning value to somebody somewhere. Who is it that's getting that value? And you view that as blue being your that's, direct customer. That's, that's my number one customer. And it took me a while to figure it out. And that, and I'm, you know, honestly a little ashamed of that. But um, I, I was a little confused by it. And I, and I, you know. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a weird role because we always say, oh, red team is not necessarily about finding vulnerabilities, but you'll find them. I make sure that everyone understands the red teaming is not, you know, there are more efficient ways to find vulnerabilities. Penetration tests do what we call breadth first search for vulnerability. They try to find every single instance of SQL injection, not just the, the one, right? Um, red teams are depth first searching. We are trying to find one and then, okay, cool. Can we pivot through that? If not, we ignore it. We go back. I don't care if there are 25 instances of SQL injection. If I get the one, I get to the next layer. I don't care if there's, you know, um, if, if, there are but blue has to care though, right? Well, we do, but not in the context of the exercise. What we do is we say, hey, no, no, blue, blue has to oh, care about. Well, yes. So in, in this case, I'm defining blue as your operations and your, your right, right, response, right, right. And they will care in the sense of um, after the fact, they'll say, okay, we, you know, the reality is we'll never have all the vulnerabilities gone. We have to be able to, to uh, detect and respond with all of the, you know, uh, the handicaps that we have here, right? Whether that handicap is we have this legacy system that doesn't log right, or we've got this legacy system that doesn't authenticate the way we want to, or whether it's um, we've got this this you know third party that's over here that doesn't play the way we want them to play with us. All of those things are are just liabilities, and you, you're the reality is you're stuck with them. You can't say, oh, well, that's a liability, so I'm going to ignore it. Now that that's that's one of my my reasons why I've got so much respect for um, for incident responders is because like they're dealing with the reality of the situation. If you've got something that lands in your network and you're trying to contain it, kick it out, there is nothing more real than dealing with that, right? And so with that motivation, we try to create those same reality scenarios for them as best we can. How much are you as a red teamer, uh, as, as someone thinking red, how much are you learning from actual nation state adversaries? Are there some things you've seen in some of these public reports around some of the big high-end uh, APTs uh, that you have been impressed and quote unquote borrowed from? Um, so I'm less impressed by APTs now than I, I maybe was, or I wouldn't say impressed, less um, uh, infatuated. No, I'm talking about not necessarily impressed or infatuated, but just uh, uh, um, uh, what's the word? Inspired, maybe? Uh, impressed is the word, but, but it's a technical impression, uh, uh, being impressed at the technical skill. Well, or a technical exploitation technique that you may not have thought of before, but now you're seeing it in TTPs for APTs uh, that you've learned from. I'm trying to get a sense. Are you learning from them at all? Um, I honestly don't. I, I Well, I, I can't say that I don't learn from them because I think that would be wrong. There's obviously some things I've, we have read and we've learned from. However, I would say they're not my go-to and, and they're not even something I'm really ultimately that concerned with. Um, Deep down, I'm I, 
when we watch these APT groups, let me word it this way. We watch these APT groups and we see things like, look at like APT 2829 back in the, the last election cycle and the, the stuff that they did. All they did was throw some fishes down, get some code execution, run Mimikatz on all the things and get credentials and, and leave. And that honestly looked like every single red team, is, you know, that, that's like the playbook of every single consulting red team there is today. And it works. And it works. Yes, it works. And and now, I mean, in the last four years, we've gotten better. You can't just run Mimikatz directly. You got to do all kinds of things to get around it, or maybe you dump LSAS and then run it offline or whatever. And there's other varieties, but the basic techniques are still there, right? Get a code execution, get a foothold, callback, whatever, um, get secrets, credentials, and then just move around till you find the stuff you want, right? So like in that regard, yeah, okay. But we also have examples. I mean, follow Nick Carr on Twitter and watch all these APT groups that look like they're emulating red teams. And then it gets really interesting. Are, are the APT groups emulating red teams or the red teams emulating APT groups? That's what, That was the source of my question. Yeah. Well, uh, Nick is great about this and has got a better perspective than I do. But um, I, I'd say, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think that they're not as, um, I'm not infatuated with, with APT groups. I'm, I'm much more interested in the fin groups because here's the other motivation, right? Most APT groups true nation states that are that are doing nation state surveillance type stuff, not, you know, North Korea trying to pretend that they're an APT or and really be a, a fin group. Most APT groups are trying to do these long term, slow play types of things. Fin groups are, you know, smash and grab, right? Exactly. You know, and the thing I have to remind my team all the time is we get paid every two weeks, whether we are successful in an objective that week or not. Right. Our paychecks come. Um, these fin groups they only get paid whenever um, you know they actually exfiltrate data that's monetizable, right? So that changes when you start thinking about whether or not you get paid, whether or not you eat the your your bread and water is tied back to whether or not you get data out of this network. You behave differently, right? And so we try our our best to keep that mindset, even though I know we don't do it as well as I would even love us to do, right? We, I always can get better at this. Think, but it's the same. It's the same attack path, right? The fin groups and the APT groups do the same thing, right? It's the same. Yeah, infiltration. It's it's a lot of phishing, or it's a lot of really basic credential stuff. Um, yeah, or, or occasionally, if it's a really good zero day that's out there everywhere, right? Um, but those are so rare. You know, back in the days when you were in, in the media, you were reporting like twenty five a week. But now it's like, how often do you see a truly remote, exe- remotely executable zero day that is a, against a wide variety of targets, has reliable source code, and the code comes out in a substantial amount of time before the patch? Right, they're rarely not APT. Yeah, that, that right. Yeah, I would say that that kind of stuff doesn't happen very often. AP, in the, I mean, I guess you could go uh, theoretical on some of the stuff with um, the, some of those Microsoft patches where the NSA was thanked, um, and we, have, you know, I have no idea the origins of those or whatever, and people can speculate online way better than I could on those things. But that's probably the extent of it. I want to just pivot back to something we talked about: applauding blue and applauding blue yeah. for good hygiene decisions. And in the spirit of that, can you talk a little bit about some really solid things that you always run into that gives you a headache at all times. Like, damn, always this roadblock. And help the audience understand about, you know, what are these four or five main roadblocks that red teamers scratch their head against all the time? Well, I don't know if I can answer that question the, the, the same way as everyone else. My experience was probably a little different. So one thing I will say is uh, an internal red team versus a, a consulting red team is is a different experience. And I think that impacts how it answer this. So if you're a consulting red team, you're going to have a variety of different customers. Um, odds are that they are just big enough that they can that they can afford having a red team exercise, but can't afford having full time staff on, on you know 24/7, 365. So they're going to have a different level of maturity probably in their detection and response 
patterns. And so as an outcropping of that, you're probably going to see a lot of the same types of behaviors, the same types of things kind of at, at almost commoditized. So as the EDR products as a commodity get better at detecting certain things, you'll see them all rise kind of together. You know, and that's that's a little different. Now, for the people uh, that I know that are on internal red teams at big companies that can afford a full time team, it's a different story entirely. Um, usually it goes something like this. Brand new team is formed. Uh, the red team just crushes the blue team. So I'm close. Then, you know, the next time around, that's probably still in favor of the red team, but it's a lot closer. And then somewhere, you know, after some period of time, a couple of exercises, whatever, blue starts to win. And it's because you can go more frequently. You got these faster iterations. You can go back and forth more uh, more frequently or whatever. And uh, these TTPs that are available on the public space start to dry up because you've got good blue teamers that are out there watching Twitter, watching GitHub, watching these techniques from actual malware uh, actors as well, and creating detect, uh, detections around them and trying to get them out there and deployed as quickly as they possibly can. And, you know, partially motivated for that group and partially motivated to, uh, you know, smash you the next time around, which I welcome, right? I think that's great. So it gets harder and harder to do. And so I think the things that we try to do to recognize and appreciate are um, the, the things that are novel to us. So like if we get shut down a new way, we, that's what these challenge coins are for. We go and we say, that was really cool that you were able to catch, catch us in this particular way. Maybe it's a neat forensics technique where you found something or maybe it was a and a lot of a lot of that quote-unquote new way is being driven from intellectual research exercises happening within blue right yeah it could be that or it could be uh just something as simple as you know um because i, I could, we sit or the availability debrief. of some new open source tool or well it, it might not even be that it might be just something like hey we went through a debrief you know with you guys and we we did this technique whatever it is maybe it's something that's really open and out there maybe it's something that's three years old but for some reason, it's never been run here for, or maybe never been run in this particular environment. If you're a really large uh, heterogeneous environment where you got lots of different types of tech stacks, maybe it's something that's just never been run there before. And then what happens is, you know, if you got a good motivated blue team, what they're going to do is they're going to say never again. And they're going to figure out how to get the detections in there. And then you're going to go back thinking that particular technique is fine. Um, I remember for, uh, I'll give you a really lame example. I remember for a long time, where we didn't think a certain persistence mechanism was, there was a, a, a way to detect it. And we got really, really comfortable with this pers persistence mechanism to the point where we even like deprioritized doing other research and development in the area of persistence. And we're like, we're just gonna do these other things because where we where our perception of, the, of a friction would be was an uncatchable, right? Yeah, we thought we thought the friction was going to be somewhere else, and this was something that it, it was just a problem scale. They could never scale out a detection for this particular mechanism, and that was that. And then one day we get shut down super hard, <laughs> and on this really elementary persistence mechanism that we had ignored for a couple of years, and then that mechanism's dead globally, and you can't use it anymore. They finally figured out how to scale the detection out, right? So stuff like that is is what you're going to see happen at these internal teams, these Fortune 1000s that, that can afford their own teams, is they're going to they're going to have like these incremental improvements as they go back and forth. And it literally is the iron sharpens iron kind of concept. It's the, what's the benefit to bringing in an outside team? Even if you're, a, if budget allows it and you already have a red team internally, what's the benefit of external eyeballs? I would say there's a handful of, of philosophies here, right? For one, you've got, let's say you're the, CFO of, you know, or the C whatever, right? Like you're, you're some chief level op, uh, officer and you have jurisdiction over your company and you know, there's an internal red team and you know, that they've got some process, but maybe you suspect that they're like 
there's something maybe a little biased about the program. If you suspect that maybe they're they're always they're, the team is only looking at a certain subset of particular things, they're not looking for other types of things. They're not they're, maybe they don't have expertise in all the areas that might be there. That might be one of your you know one thought that you have. Another thought might be uh, that maybe the internal teams are are um, gaming the the exercises in some way, and so maybe you know there's blue has some unfair leg up because of the fact that the red team is part of the company and they therefore and they know what they're targeting or whatever the case may be. And so you might bring an outsider in just for that sake of like kind of just almost like a control group, a control sample in a scientific experiment. Right. You mentioned earlier that some of these things uh, can go on for four or five months. Is there yeah, a certain control thing? <laughs> you is could... there like a as a red teamer, right? You run this exercise. Is there like a certain human component where you want to go over to the defensive guys and nudge them and say, guys, this thing is wide open and, and, and not have it sit there for four months until the report is written? You understand? Is there or, or is there like a certain bar where certain things have to be addressed immediately? Absolutely. We have rules for what we have to disclose immediately. Uh, critical things have to get disclosed immediately. We have and the critical bar is something that you've codified internally. It's, it's absolutely defined. It's it's a combination of things. I mean, it's basically things that are public facing that uh, can be remotely exploited, right? So if it's if it's something that if there's a public outside outside in kind of a method that, to get in, then we we burn it instantly. Now we we can have we can do things like where we trade access for access. We can go in and say, hey, we found this thing. We're going to burn it like right now, but you're going to give us access someplace else that's similar, right? So we can just get this thing. You know, we protect the company first. And so there's a lot of, a lot of and this is not new to, obviously not unique to my team. This is something that all red teams, you know, everywhere pretty much do is they do stuff like this. But um, regarding hanging on to stuff, I always describe it as walking a knife's edge, right? We walk the blade of a knife on one side. If we divulge things too fast, we don't get to find out how deep the rabbit hole really is. And then on the other side, if we hang on to it too long, we expose the company to risk. And it's like there's never a 100% crystal clear best answer, but there are times where we have hung on to things that, that are where we've gotten access someplace that maybe maybe we were able to close the access up behind us. So maybe we got in, but we're the last one. We shut the door behind us. Now it's okay for us to camp out here for a while, right? We can camp out in this particular environment and then just see what we can learn. And so situations like that are usually what dictates a, a long-term exercise. We almost always will do things like that. On the technology front, uh, what technologies, not necessarily products or companies, because I don't want us to be here promoting any sort of companies, yeah. but what technologies or specific things that impress you as an offensive guy? Oh, well, shoot. Canaries. I really like canaries. Uh, honey tokens, honey credentials. Um, these Why? Are, oh, because it's it's they're wonderful. Uh, go ask Haroon here sometime about that. But <laughs> yeah. the, the, the cool thing... I, know, I feel like Haroon's name gets dropped at this podcast yeah. every... You're welcome, Haroon. Uh, so, uh, what I would say is, I mean, this concept is ages old, um, and it's, you can use his products or you can, you like, you can make your own. They're not terribly difficult to do. It's, it just takes time and diligence and, and you can do it. You can just, it takes creativity, right? You could do something like, um, I'm going to put a fake user in my active directory and I, and if I, and I'm going to give them maybe admin rights of something. And if I see anybody try to, uh, log in or authenticate with this account, I'm going to have special alerting that immediately pages out everyone and just boom, I know that this, this account's been compromised so I can, I can know exactly what part of the network is compromised. You can do things like that. You can also do things like embed URLs that are very unique inside of documents. And there are ways to do this like pixel trackers 
um, and put them in weird places where they fire without macros. So you don't need a, like a, an actual maldoc. You can have just a document that if this document gets opened, and all, almost all the office types support things like this. If this document gets opened, it will basically uh, create just a single web request to a single domain to, to a custom, you know, very unique URL. And then you have alerting set up on that. Boom, this document was opened. And you can know exactly where it's at. Um, you know, Haroon's got... That's an early warning system. It's just foolproof. It's a no-brainer, right? It is. It's a really nifty thing that, that is like, think of it as a tripwire for, you know, for like last resort. Like somebody got past two, three, four layers. And um, Haroon's dead on right when he says, you know, if you're a pen tester or a red teamer and you're looking and you see this like like an AWS token or you see a, an Azure token or you see a whatever, an RDP, a dot RDP file that looks like it's got credentials in it. I mean, it could be a hundred different types of things or an SSH key, or, you know, you just keep going, right? Any of those things, you look at them, you're like, your first reaction is, I have to find out what's on the other side of that. I have to find <laughs> out what it has access to. And so um, once stuff like that is deployed in the network, and, and uh, I'll tell you, the first the first time you'll, you'll get, if like the red team doesn't know, you'll, they'll get caught. And then what'll happen is the next time around, uh, red team will second guess every little thing they do, and it will slow them down. Right, right. <laughs> right. So now you're you're raising the bar and you're raising the cost, right? Yep. Now a fin group or a whatever a criminal group may not know that that stuff's in your environment or may not, you know, or have never encountered it or whatever, and and they may just keep you know smash and grab and go fast. But the point is that stuff will go off in unique ways, and you could put these. I mean, like you can literally wherever you can think of somebody accessing something, you could come up with some sort of a mechanism that does this, and put them anywhere, put them everywhere. And then have like, I, I know that, you know, this particular section of my enterprise was tripped over just now. And you can find insiders that are just poking around. Like, you know, that's another common way for these. Like it's, maybe it's not an actual bad guy, but it's, you know, somebody who's, you know, bored in a, in a warehouse poking around, that sort of thing. Right. Oh, yeah, I like I like the choice of canaries um, and tokens as uh, one of the more impressive technological things. Um, multi-factor authentication, obviously, is a yeah. Uh, multi-factor is really cool. I, I really I I have a lot of respect for the FIDO two, uh, the U two F standard for the new the new mm -hmm. tokens, which is not widely adopted yet. But that what's nifty about that is it's going to do multi-factor with with keys and certificates, which is not new. It's been around since SSH really. Um, but it's going to do it in a way where you get locked into a specific domain. So I can't really, I, that scenario I talked about with real-time man in the middle, um, I can't just go spin up, this is my fake real-time man in the middle.com and trick you to go there and then get your U2F key to work there. It'll say, no, I'm not, I, that key does not work on any domain except for the real domain. So stuff like that, I think is, is going to hold a, I think it's going to pay dividends once it's mass adopted. We just need to get it out there and, um, you know, get enterprises to adopt it, get, consumers to adopt it. So that's a cool feature. Um, but you know. uh, we're up against the clock. It's like uh, the 48 minute mark. I try to keep these podcasts to 30 minutes, but this one is so fascinating to me that I don't want to stop, but I want to be mindful because I want to ask you about jujitsu in a second. Before I ask you about jujitsu, um, I want to go back to the, if we win, uh, we lose yeah. challenge coin mentality. Is there a way to flip that into when we win, we win? Uh, isn't that the end goal? And how often are you finding that you're copying and pasting the same findings from one report to the other? Uh, you know, some things just never get fixed. And are there those like, you know, they're gnawing problems that just persist over time that uh, stops you from getting to if we win, we win? Well, um, regarding the if we win, we win. So this, this, is, this is definitely a um, dichotomy, right? There's uh, 
we will absolutely do the fist bumps and the high fives when we, we get something, we get access to something or we reach an objective or whatever. We definitely celebrate those as a red team. We also equally find ways to celebrate when we get shut down. And I think that's really what it boils down to. You have to find yourself being excited about both things. And something I've, I've caught myself saying a lot of times recently is the only thing I think that is probably more satisfying than being a red teamer and reaching an objective is probably being a blue teamer and kicking out an adversary that made their way in. And I think the more I think about both sides of this, the, the deeper I get, the more bluish, purplish, reddish, whatever color, it just, it kind of just all blurs. And it's kind of like you're playing chess and you're rotating that chessboard around and you're just looking at it from the other to- the other player's side, right? So I, I try to think about just both sides at any given point in time and, and just try to reward, you know, the behaviors on both sides or think about, hey, if we're doing this right now, what would I be doing if I was trying to stop me, right? And if you ever go out to, if you're really into this, Red Team Journal, I'll give them a plug. Uh, they have a bunch of interesting Red Team laws and one of them is this. Um, Say that again because I missed it redteamjournal.com red team journal okay yeah, mark matieski i think is how you say his name um, nice guy and uh, he's been writing stuff about red teams longer than i've even really known anything about red teams and so um, he, he's got these things called the red team laws and one of the laws out there i don't remember which one off the top of my head says the um, the novice red teamer thinks about being an attacker Right. They, they think about being an attacker. And that's what you think about when you see somebody that does their first pen test. They're like, wow, I got I sent this weird, you know, this single tick mark. And then this all the contents of this database fell out in the web browser. That was amazing. Right. So like the first time they experience something like that, that's what they're doing. They're the novice. The journeyman uh, red teamer thinks about the uh, the defender. Right. So they're, they're doing their thing and they're like they're cognizant of, of, you know, the other side. So this is a red teamer is like, ooh, if I do this right now. I'm leaving this artifact behind, right? I need to be careful about that. And you can obviously tell that's that's a sign of maturity. And then the, um, uh, what's he called? The master red teamer, I think is a term he uses, is um, thinking about both sides, thinking about the other side, <laughs> right? You've got the red teamer. Right. You're, you're thinking about the attacker, thinking about the defender, and you're thinking about the defender, thinking about the attacker. And you're and you're just thinking about both sides almost in this abstract way where like, you, I, I, I guess in my mind, visualize it as I've got this chessboard, I've got my red team on one side. I've got the blue team on the other. Could you stop using chess, please? I've, I've put it on a T for you to use jujitsu because it's the same uh, exact it is. mentality, right? It is absolutely. It is absolutely the same thing. But, you know, some people- and, and that's why that's why the if we lose, uh, if we win mentality uh, uh, resonates with me is my fondness uh, for jujitsu. Yes. Where the more I tap, the better I get. Yes. And, you know, the more my partner is invested in my getting better, I can see all the red and blue conversations playing in my head here. Right. Yes. And, you know, what? since we since we breached into the jujitsu te- uh, territory now, here here's some other analogies back to some of the other things we talked about. So, like um, you were talking about how how is it possible for a red team and a blue team to have, you know, some like adversarial nature or angst in the in the relationships. And I'd say it's probably a lot like that first time somebody goes into a gym and they don't know anything about jujitsu really. And maybe they think that they're, you know, they were something or they were a varsity, you know, something, something athlete in high school. And they're like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm some sort of a big, strong stud. I got this, no problem. And they go in there against that, you know, um, Jeremiah Grossman story, the, the 75 year old lady that kept choking him over and over again inside of 30 seconds. And he's like, what the heck? Right. I, I've got a hundred pounds on this lady. Right. So like that kind of story is something that I, I you see 
a lot. And you see when, when you're in a gym, you'll see these new people come in and you'll, you'll see that humility happen. And I think what part of this is when you've got red teamers and blue teamers that go against each other, specifically probably more so on the blue, blue side, they've never really had that moment where they've been you know, tapped out and recognize that it's a learning opportunity. They haven't associated the negative feeling of getting tapped with the positive feeling of I'm learning, right? And I think that's something that you need to make sure that you are, as, as a red team, uh, are like highlighting, right? That's why we use the term that this is your gym. This is your equipment. We're getting right. more equipment in right. here, right? It's all but, pretty much. But Tim, let me, let, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt and give you the blue perspective here as we yeah. go back to the jujitsu mat. There's always that guy on the jujitsu mat that has to flex and has to be spazzing and has to constantly like dump you on your back and give you that extra squeeze. There's a lot of guys on red teams that have that, that same kind of quote-unquote asshole mentality, right? So it goes both ways. Well, I think... That particular, I would liken that to the the person who is brand new still, right? Maybe they've been doing right. it three to six months, and they've, you know, you're in, in that scenario. Your red teamer is the is the you know three stripe white belt that's been doing this long enough to know a few things, and the and the blue team is the you know fresh first time on the mat, no stripe white belt, and you've got that kind of a, an experience, right? But the longer you do red teaming, the more you realize that you're going to get tapped as much from the red side when blue contains you as you will the other way around. Right. And so both sides get better. And someday you look down, and you're like, Hey, we're blue, we're purple, we're whatever color, you know, belt. And, uh, we appreciate both sides. Nothing is automatic. Nothing's a given. There's no guarantees that we're going to hit our objectives. There's no guarantees. We're Do you sometimes hit. get a thrill when you're caught? Oh, absolutely. Just like a, a thrill of, uh, the organization benefiting. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, we, we, <laughs> we've been caught, I guarantee you we've been shut down more times than we have gotten to objectives. Not hands down, not even close, right? Hands down. And that's how it should be, right? I mean, that's a sign of a mature organization. Absolutely. Absolutely it should. And, you know, and what, but uh, if you got shut down, like we're going to take this in jujitsu terms. If you were rolling with me and uh, you kept tapping me the same exact way and I didn't understand what was happening and you never told me and we didn't get any better, that would be the same thing as blue, you know, going in there and shutting red down and not telling them how you kept catching him. Or it'd be the exact same thing as red to keep reaching some sort of objective and then keeping a secret, the, the details in the middle and the, in the attack tra- chain. Right. So like debriefing and having that 20 seconds at the end of your five minute roll with, with your partner of, Hey, you kept bringing your elbow out or whatever it is, whatever, you know, the jujitsu thing that you're doing that was equivalent, just having that moment where you tell them, Hey, this, I keep seeing this. That makes that person better, and that makes your, your if your opponent gets that much better, rather than sit there and think, oh, man, I, I, I don't want Ryan to know how I'm tapping him every time because I don't want him to be. Yeah, how am I learning? Challenge, right? Like, dang, do I tell Neither him? of you are learning. Yeah, exactly. You have to recognize and you have to like, you have to find happiness in the fact that you're letting that information go, right? Because you have to also realize that um, there's, there's, I mean, this is like deeply philosophical, but there will never be perfect security. Never. Right. One time, once upon a time, uh, up and coming red teamer asked me privately, are you ever concerned about when some new security control comes out and it's going to shut you down and you're never going to be able to do red teaming ever again and you're just going to be done? And I panicked for about 30 seconds to a minute, like straight up panic, like, oh, man, what if that happens? And then I realized, wait a minute, that assumes we finally reach perfect security, which is impossible. Right. It's no, it cannot possibly exist. Right? It cannot happen. So then I realized, okay, as long as I recognize that perfect security is impossible, 
then there will always be something. Now, the, what it really boils down to is, can I as an individual keep up? Can I learn? Can I, can I stay ahead? Can I find out what those things are? You know, can I keep my career relevant is really what my ego is saying in that situation, right? And so once you boil it down to those terms, it's, it's different, right? So like going back to jujitsu, it's, it's the same, uh, the same idea, right? If you're sitting there and you're like, hey, I, I keep tapping Ryan and I don't want him to know. But then I'm like, you know what? Let him know because he's going to do something better, which means I'm going to be forced to learn. And then he's going to tell me, and then I'm going to, you know, learn something and then I'm going to tell him, and then it's going to go back and forth and back and forth. And you're just, you're going to a realize that <laughs> you're getting paid to play jujitsu with computers on an enterprise network, number one, which is fun about red team, right? You and blue and B uh, you're, you're both getting so much farther advanced than you would if you were someplace else where it was not, where you don't get to do these exercises very often or it's unhealthy. How important is it for every cybersecurity practitioner to get on the jiu-jitsu mat at least <laughs> for five times? Man or woman, boy or girl? Well, you know, like we're extremely biased, so it's 100% important. I know. I, I'm but just I, trying to encourage everyone to try jiu-jitsu. I, I, let, let me make this very clear. I am still very much a novice in jiu-jitsu. And that's part of the reason why I love it. Because... I, I realized that I don't know squat and I've been doing this computer security stuff for 20 years. So when I'm, I'm over here in the computer security world, there's, there's rarely something like ground shaking new, right. That I'm just like completely caught off guard by, but in jujitsu, you can go in and like, Hey, there's probably something new you're going to learn instantly. And probably for the first six months, year, two years, you're going to be learning this, these big things that you didn't know, like you could move in certain ways or, or like, Hey, this little bit of geometry, if I just change this little angle of my elbow and this bad thing happens to the other guy, th that sort of thing is just, it, it just makes you laugh. Like I honestly, there's been so many times I've, you know, going on the jujitsu mats where I I'm suddenly weightless. I'm not a little guy, I'm six foot and I'm over 200 pounds. And so when somebody can make me weightless, when somebody smaller than me can make me weightless, I have literally laughed, you know, it's like, this is hilarious. I have to understand how this works. And so I think there's so many different parallels. And, you know, if nothing else, it's basically using the same part of your brain to do this deep, logical thinking. It's very cerebral. You know, it's, it's not um, as physical as people think it might be. Right. It's, it's very, and on top of it, it's the best physical exercise you can get. I mean, it, it's, it's yeah, it's pretty good. And then you can also have these guys that are super chill that have been doing this a long time that know basically how to exert very little energy and can still really beat you because it's all about that alavanca, right? That, that leverage. So <laughs> it's, it's a neat thing. And I, I think, I mean, there's a, there's a bazillion kind of uh, segues or not. Uh, no, that's not a good word. There's, there's just a ton of similarities, I think, between this and InfoSec and well, for that matter, life in general. But if you're an InfoSec and you haven't given a shot, you're really missing out. And then if you absolutely, and if you're going to like Black Hat ever, if we ever have Black Hat uh, conferences again after this COVID nineteen thing, you go you know, to the SmackDown. Yeah, go to the SmackDown. I, I literally that's not, that was my first time. I was going you know several years ago. I said, hey Jeremiah on Twitter, can I can I go as somebody who's never done it before? And I had heard about it from Jocko Willink's podcast, and I was really wanted to try it. And uh, gave it a shot, and like he was like, sure, come on in, and you'd be surprised that. These good, healthy gyms are very welcoming and supportive of new new people because I'll recognize that they were there, right? It's just absolutely kind of like, kind of like in, in InfoSec, if you've got a good, healthy organization and department, you're going to have people that recognize you need to train up your, your junior members, right? Um, you, not everyone's an expert. And everyone realizes deep down that any expert, even a Fortune 1000 with a, a five gajillion dollar a year security budget can still get owned, right? With the right adversary and maybe even an adversary that operated the entire thing for less than 100 bucks. 
you know, that's the asymmetry of InfoSec is very similar to the asymmetry in jujitsu, and that's that's why I really like it. And with that, I'll, I'll, that's a perfect way to put a bow on this. Tim, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This has been an amazing conversation, and we haven't even touched on your career, which spanned a lot of academia, some fascinating things along the way. So would you mind, you got to come back on the podcast yeah, sure, uh, another time so we can finish up properly. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ryan.